Father in heaven, you know every person in this room. You know what it is you want to speak to each of us as people, as individuals, and also, Lord, as a family. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us hearts to see, uh, eyes to see, hearts, Lord, to receive what it is you want to speak to us so into our lives today, Lord, and inspire us, motivate us, draw us in, captivate us, and let us have so much fun in your word now, I pray. And I pray, Lord, that in this time you would do something beautiful, something profound, Lord, in each of us. Redeem every second, I pray. Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Come upon me and use me now, I pray. And for all of us, Lord, we pray. Minister as you ordain. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. You've heard that before. We're walking a week with Jesus in the following verses. Uh, after our first 18 verses of prologue is really what we have, we now enter into the narrative. Jesus has been baptized. The heavens have opened. The Father has testified and confirmed Jesus. This is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son in whom in you I am well pleased. Jesus has then been through the wilderness season of temptation. All of that has taken place before verse 19. Uh, Jesus, of course, has shut down Satan. No matter everything that Satan had to offer, Jesus would shut him down in every bit of it. And now he emerges from that horrific time, 40 days of testing and trial to begin his public ministry. The remaining portion of John 1, that again is from 19 through 51, is really, in essence, the first four days of Jesus' public ministry after his temptation and his first encounters with his first disciples. So to kind of make it a little easier, and you'll see that in verse 19, we'll read this text, 19 to 28, and verse 20, I'll say the next day and then in verse 35 again the next day and then in verse 43 it'll say and then the following day that's four days in a row so you can't kind of avoid that so let's just kind of make it easy on ourselves if you will let's just let's just play as if the first day were Monday now we've got a one in a seven chance that that could be right Uh, either way what we do know is they're going to be four days in succession so really we're going to walk a, a week with Jesus each day by the way seems to progress from the last in many ways and really the kind of question we need to ask ourselves is which one of these days do we find our current state of the Lord with Uh, Because there are going to be four very distinct ones. Uh, So, if you will, Monday 19 through 28, Tuesday 29 through 34, Wednesday 35 through 42, and then Thursday, the rest of the chapter, 43 through 51. Read our first, let's walk our first day. Monday 19 through 28. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, but did not, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Well, then they said to him, well, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, and that's quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And he asked them, they asked him, saying, well, why then do you baptize if you are not? the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them saying, I baptize with water yet, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. On our first day, okay, we'll play it out as if it were Monday, John the Baptist is encountered by a group of people. Now, this group of people, is, they're obviously seeking information, but did you notice they're not seeking information for themselves? They're seeking information because they've been sent on a task by the Pharisees who have now heard, after 400 years of prophetic silence, there is a madman, if you will, standing out in the middle of the heat where the uh, Sea of Galilee kind of comes down to its bottleneck. Uh, that would be the northern end there. That's where Bethabara is. By the way, for what it's worth, it may very well be what we see in Judges 7, 24, where Gideon takes the land all the way to it. 
And it's there that this man dressed in a fur, eating bugs and a wild honey, then uh, starts to proclaim repent to the Jews, a strange group of people. Usually that's given to the Gentiles. And, and they are seeing some form of activity, again, after 400 years of prophetic silence. And so they are nervous. They're wondering what's going on. And in the simplest sense, since they had the market cornered on religion, when something starts to happen outside of their walls, they get a little nervous about it and assume it can't be good. I mean, that can happen today, of course, in any church, where you kind of get caught up in your thing and you just assume if it's not happening in your church, it must not be a good thing. But I'd like you to kind of consider a couple points in this, because in our first day, what we really have, if you will, is inquiry without investment. There is an inquiry for information, but it is not without, it's without personal investment. And there will be situations where you'll have this uh, when you're speaking with somebody. They're asking questions, but they really aren't listening for an answer. They're kind of asking questions to keep you at bay because you're sort of a religious nut at this point, And they just don't want you coming at them. So they're going to throw the, you know, the old pepper spray, Christian pepper spray, who was Cain's wife, like that matters. Or what about the, you know, the Pope or what about the Inquisitions or in something you never had anything to do with. And to be honest, I might even say something that Jesus had nothing to do with. Now, with, with all of that, uh, in regards to some of those scandals and things that they speak of, the, the issue here, though, in this first day, and I'd like you to notice this, is there are two focuses. There's the focus of John and there's the focus of those retrieving the information. Notice the radical difference. In verse 19, they're sent and they ask, who are you? In verse 21, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? What do you say about yourself? Verse 25, they asked them, well, then why do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Notice that their focus is all on the man. And this is often what's going to be the case when you're talking to somebody. Really, in essence, they may be seeking inquiry, but they're not having any personal investment in the information. So you're talking to them, and they're going to say, well, what about that person, or what about that person, or what about you? And they, the one person they don't want to think about is themselves in regards to Jesus. Now, notice John's approach, on the other hand. John says in verse 20, I'm not the Christ. He says in verse 23, I'm the voice in the wilderness, make straight away for the Lord. Verse 26, there's one who stands among you whom you don't know. It's he who is coming after me that was preferred before me, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loose. Notice that John was doing completely the opposite. And might I say, we can learn from this when you're talking to somebody and it seems like they're asking questions, but they're really not seemingly interested in an answer. What do I do? Do I simply go in and follow their rabbit trails? And what I find is John had a lot of rabbit trails he could have followed. I mean, the whole issue of Elijah comes from Malachi 4.5, where, where Elijah comes before, the, before the, the Messiah. So he could have explained that. The prophet comes from Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses said the Lord will raise up a prophet like him. So he could argue that point if he wants to. There's a lot of places he could go, whip out his spiritual bandolero, if you will, and just start riddling them full of holes, just like we could. We read the Bible, and someone wants to talk about something, and we want to jump into that arena because we know that we can throw that punch in that particular arena, that's going to knock him out. And yet what John does is he keeps bringing it to Jesus. In our first group, on our first day, what we find is there are a group of people who have a real problem with focus. And because of that, they'll ask for information, but not the information. And that's kind of what happens here. I do find it interesting. The easiest way to keep me from investing in the information is to convince me that it really actually pertains to somebody else and not me. And you know, this can happen at church, right? You hear information and you're like, oh, I wish that person was here to hear that. Oh, if they could hear that, that would so get them. Meanwhile, you're here and you're kind of shelving off the information, kind of going, well, you're here. There's a reason for you to be here and hear this. Back in the book of, or I should say forward, in the book of Acts chapter 16, Paul is actually in Philippi. As Paul is in Philippi, there is a possessed girl that is following them. She's possessed, and by the way, as you're aware, possessed by a demon. And as that's the case, she follows them and she says, these are servants of the most high God telling you the way of salvation. And for days she goes on doing this. And for days it seems like Paul and, and uh, T Silas and Timothy are putting up with it. Finally, Paul's had enough. And he casts the demon out of her, for which then creates all kinds of fun. Uh, Paul gets in prison because now it's sort of damaged to property in the eyes of the slave girl's owner and all of that. The, the reason I say it is this. That this demon is not lying here with what, what she's saying. These are servants of the Most High God telling you the way of salvation. What she's saying is true. However, 
notice where the focus is. The focus is on them instead of Jesus. And it's subtle, but it's subtle enough that it's easy to miss. And I watch this take down really gifted men and women in ministry where what you see is somewhere down the line, they, their, their focus was on the Lord. And as long as it's on the Lord, it's just not on scorekeeping. It's just not on all of the things that come with the ministry and the politics of it. But instead, they move from there and the, and the enemy throws a mirror in their face and they either think they're greater than they are or they get consumed with feeling inadequate. And in either case, it'll take you down. And again, the issue is just a simple focus problem. On our first day, on Monday, there are a group of people who are gathering information. God forbid that be any of you. But you're kind of gathering it because you want to strengthen your argument against someone else. Because somewhere in all of it, maybe there is, it would be good to know, keep it in your back pocket, but there's no personal investment. But I say, don't let that be the case for you. Well, with that in mind, that takes us to our second day, Tuesday, 29 to 34. Notice it says, the next day. John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who was preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he, sent, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Now on our second day, now we'll call it Tuesday if you will, there is this issue where John now is publicly testifying. On the first day, I remind you, there is a confrontation between John and the religious leaders from Jerusalem because they're thinking, how come you're not part of our club? You must be wrong. On the second day, John does all of this testimony and notice he starts by saying, behold, in other words, there he is. And what's interesting is on the second day, we're going to find nobody seems to follow him. On the third day, there's a couple of, the, of John's disciples who are going to follow him. But on this day, John gives this beautiful testimony. He says, there he is. And we all look and see him. And then we watch him walk by. And that's our second day. It's where on our first day, if you will, there is, if you, well, for what it's worth, on our first day, there's sort of an inquiry without investment. On our second day, there's information without initiative. We're getting the information and we agree with the information now. And there may even be some personal investment where inside our hearts we go, yes, that's true. However, there's just nothing inside of us that's motivated to do anything about it. And there's something about this that becomes some of the most dangerous place uh, in our own hearts to be in regards to studying God's word. Because we can become theologians, sort of, if you will, fat, rear-ended, weak-legged theologians where we seem to have all of this information, but our feet have no concept of any of it. Do you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has just been born. And as Jesus has just been born, there is quite a stir in Herod's household. Herod, a very paranoid leader at the time, had gotten his, his, uh, his position through uh, deceit and intrigue and therefore assumed everybody else was gunning for his job, kind of like he gunned to get where he was. He killed every able-bodied son because they were a threat to him. So that gives you an idea where he was. So when a Messiah is supposed to show up, the king of the Jews is supposed to show up, he's obviously quite put out by it. So he calls in the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders. And as he calls in the chief priests and the elders, he asks them, so where is this Messiah supposed to be born? Or I'm sorry, where is he supposed to come from? And they said to him, Bethlehem in Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least of the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Oh, they knew verse and text. The chief priests and the rulers didn't say, hold on, let us go check the scrolls, we'll have a meeting, and we'll confer, and then we'll come back with you. It was on their tongue. Herod calls them, and he's like, so. And I almost see him kind of like the guff. He's like, so. There seems to be a problem here, and I need to know. Where is the Messiah? And they're like, oh. Well, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. That's from Micah. Come on, we can quote that. 
Here's the strange part. Why is it that, that there's no chief priests or elders in the nativity set when you put it out on Christmas? I mean, we have, we'll put a little drummer boy out there like that ever showed up. You know, that we put the animals and the wise men and the shepherds. We see that from the Matthew account and from the Luke account. We'll put them all in the same place so that they kind of look pretty. Why is there not a single chief priest or a single elder? They knew all the information, but they didn't do anything about it. Just like what we see on our Tuesday, where Jesus is being pointed out. And notice what John says about him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the sacrifice and the sin remover for all of mankind. This is he of whom I said, he's eternal. He was before me. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He told us that yesterday. He said, this is the reason I came baptizing. My whole mission was to point this guy out, and there he is. And he says, I didn't even know that he was the Messiah. Don't miss that. He said, I didn't even know that he was the Messiah, but... The one who sent me gave me this clear proof. He says, you know, when the guy is being baptized, the Holy Spirit's going to light like a dove upon him. No. Apparently that's strange enough you don't see it. Now, in all of our baptisms that we've done, and we've done hundreds, I've never seen any bird sit upon the shoulder of anyone that has just been baptized. Usually because when someone gets baptized, they're usually screaming or howling or flying out of the water as quickly as they can. And if you think that the ocean, the sea is cold, you got to get near the Jordan. The Jordan is colder. Of the three tributaries, the things that make up the Jordan, one of them is just melted ice off of Mount Hermon. And believe me, it's barely melted by the time it gets down there. I mean, of all the places I've ever baptized, no place is colder than the Jordan. Now, don't let that scare you. We go to Israel, still get baptized there. It's still fun, wouldn't you say? And yet in it, the reason I say that is, is that John says, I didn't know him as the Messiah, but he did know him. Jesus was his cousin, I remind you. Mary had a cousin, if you will, or an aunt named Elizabeth, and she even visited her. And there was a whole beautiful interplay between the two of them in the Gospel of Luke. However... When Jesus comes to be baptized, John the Baptist looks at him and says, I should be baptized by you. And yet he didn't know he was the Messiah. I mean, put the two and two together there. John said, I didn't know he was the Messiah until the whole baptism thing happened. So here's Jesus coming and he looks at him, knowing that he's his cousin, having some experience with him, but not knowing that he's the Messiah and saying, well, I actually should be baptized by you. John saw a more righteous person in Jesus before he was baptized, not knowing he was the Messiah. And Jesus said, but this is the way that Scripture puts it. Let's do it. This is, to, let's just, this is the way we obey, and let's do it together. Now, with that in mind, loose paraphrase, of course. Now, with that, then Jesus is baptized, obviously, and the, the Father speaks from heaven. The dove, the, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, lands up, lines upon him. Doesn't just bounce off of him, but sits there. I mean, and that would be just kind of, wouldn't that be just a great moment? And you see Jesus, and it tells us as he's praying, all of this is happening. So his hands are raised, if you will. Water's just dripping off of him. John the Baptist is going, I really should have been baptized by you. He comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit. What would that moment be like for John the Baptist? Think that through. And all of a sudden, there comes a dove. And you, he's got to think, well, fuck. <laughs> Yeah, but this is my cousin. Is that really? What? 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 And there's the dove sitting on his shoulder right next to John. And you could see John going, well, maybe this is going to happen more than once. Maybe this is, maybe this happens a lot around here. And then the Holy, then not only is the Holy Spirit testifying, but then the Father parts the heavens and is like, John, that's your man. That's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John, this is your guy. And you could see John the Baptist going, I lived all those years with him. I had all those encounters with him, all of those feasts where our families would gather together. And I wonder how I would have done things differently if I'd have known he was the Messiah from the beginning. But on our second day, John, in his testimony, doesn't just say, hey, this, was the, this is the sin remover, this is the sacrifice, but he's also the Holy Spirit giver, the one who will empower you for your ministry. And there's this process, if you notice, from sin to salvation and from salvation all the way to service that John walks us through here. And he goes, hey, that's your man. That's the one. That's the one. And all of the disciples of John, you could see them going, there he is. And there he goes. And I wonder how many that night, Tuesday night, we sat with John or we sat together and we looked and we went, dude, I should have gone. And when I saw, I 
If that's really the Messiah, what am I doing with John still? He told me, that's the guy I need to follow. We agreed with that information. We heard the exhortation. We knew that's what we're supposed to do. And there he was. What's wrong with us? Man, if we only had another chance. And I wonder how many of us would have said that that night. God, can I have just one more chance? You know, I had this opportunity to jump on the most amazing adventure in the universe, to follow God. And he walked right by, and there he was, and I could have ran up to him, and I didn't. Here's the good news. Wednesday's coming. On our Tuesday, where we have a day like this, information without initiative, well, that's what we have. In the end of it all, how do I deal with somebody in this situation? If I'm talking to them, or how do I deal with the person in my own heart that's a Tuesday person? Where I'm happy to get the information, but I just don't really want to know if I want to do more than that. Because fear happens there. There's no fear in gathering the information. But the moment you're like, you know, I really need to do this. Now the fear steps in. But Jesus told us in Matthew 7, 24, you can't build your house on the rock without doing it, not just hearing it. James would tell us this way in James 1, 2, 3, 1, 23. He'd say that, you know, a person who hears the word but doesn't do anything with it, it's like a guy who looks at his face in the mirror and when he walks away, he forgets what kind of guy he is. And I get the idea of that. Somewhere as I read the word, and you know this, if you're kind of struggling with your own self and you're struggling with life, And then you read the word and it brings you such comfort and such solidity. And there you are and you're solid and you feel like, all right, I can handle the world again. And then you walk out there. But in walking in disobedience, you find yourself tossed again. Perhaps the reason is that. James says it's because when you walk away and you're not doing what you're reading, you leave it behind. And you're like, well, what color am I anyway? So how tall am I? Now, some of us would rather look in the mirror and forget what we look like. Uh, well, I'll speak for myself. But on the other side of that, when it comes to Scripture, every time I look in that mirror, I love what I see. I don't want to forget that. So on our Monday, oh, we were there and we, we were inquisitive, but we really didn't have any form of personal inv- you know, sort of insertion into it. We really didn't have any investment. But on our second day, we got the information, but we had no initiative to do anything with it. That takes us to our Wednesday. Verse 35. Again the next day. Now this is our third day. John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Same thing he said before. Behold the Lamb of God. There he is. Behold, check him out. There he is. And by the way, well, let me say this. I actually I, I wanted to make sure I got this clear. How do I deal with me or how do I deal with others in that Tuesday? Well, what does John do? He talks about his personal encounter, not just information, but his experience with God and how Jesus became real to him. And might I say, when you're dealing with somebody that has no action in their life, give testimony about what happens when you encounter God and not just about when you learn about him. Whether that's what you need to do with yourself or what you need to do with others, chances are both. Now or Wednesday. Again, the third day, John stood with two of his disciples. Looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him. That word, by the way, is choosing to listen. It's a kuho, like we get acoustic from it. Hold on. All right. They heard him speak, and because they chose to give audience to what John said, more than overhear the information, they chose to genuinely listen. They followed Jesus. And when they turned, when Jesus turned and seeing them follow him, he said to them, in our first words, Jesus speaks, in all of the gospel of John. What are you looking for? What do you seek? I find it interesting. He isn't saying, who do you seek? But what? What are you really looking for, boys? And they said to him, Ravi, which is to be translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, well, come and see. Jesus' second words. Here are Jesus' two statements so far in the gospel of John. What are you looking for? And we'll come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, remained with him that day. Uh, It was about the 10th hour. That's our hour of dinner, by the way, for what it's worth. So they're more than likely they supped with him. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. 
And he brought him to Jesus. Then when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Kephas, which is the Aramaic word translated stone or rocky, if you will. Yo. Now, did you notice no ministry happened on those first two days? I mean, in regards to some form of fruit. People came and they went and found information. They went back and told it to the people that sent them. On the second day, we saw Jesus come and go, but we're not, we, because we didn't do anything, how would we expect then anything to happen through us when we ourselves were not even obedient to it? And there are so many times we want to see great fruit happen in our lives, but we're not even willing to follow. And if we're not willing to follow, there's a different story. But on our third day, what we find is there's a periodic following. If you will, there's an identification, but with a limited investment. Now, what I mean by that is that notice that they're going to come, they're going to check Jesus out, and they're going to ask where he's staying, and then they're going to stay with him for the rest of the day. But that's it. And this is our third day. Now, again, I remind you, each of these progresses. The first day, we get information, but we have no personal investment. The second day, now we're doing more than that. We're actually taking it, we're gathering it, we're really finding ourselves interested, but we're really not taking any initiative to do anything about it. And some of us have actually had at one time, even in our walk, some place where there was a burr in our saddle. There was some kind of fire happening, and we're like, I got to do that. I'm going to do that. And then somewhere down the line, we're like, oh. And then once we started saying no, it became habitual. And now we're addicted to saying no to God. And well, please know that God can deliver you out of that Tuesday. But I would do like what John does. And that's, let me remind you, there is a personal encounter with God that is more than watching him walk by. There was a personal encounter when you walk with him and you follow him. And on that third day, there is this aspect. But now it's it's where everything is being handled and metered by your own hand. In other words, yeah, I will take Jesus and I will follow Jesus, but it's going to be at my say. In other words, at a point like this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'll see where he's staying. Now, why would I ask where he's staying? More than likely, because then I know where I could visit him. There's the danger. If I'm like, Jesus, where are you? Where, where can I find you if I need you? Well, I'll come and see for yourself. And what we find is this tends to be what we might call churchized Christianity. In other words, I'll come to church when life gets rough. I'll come to church when things seem a little bit in the toilet. I, know, I need to know where to find you, God. And so here it is. But I'm going to go with those times when there are other things. Well, let's face it. Sundays are a rough thing, man, because anything that happens seems to happen on a Sunday. If I want to join a football club, it's going to be Sunday. If I want to hang out and do something, it's always going to be a Sunday. And I look at my friends who seem religious and they're like, like any of us want to do something on a Sunday. That's our day to rest. And, you know, but then what happens is they find themselves in the foxhole. Things get rough. And what happens then we're like, I need to get to church. Oh, I need to get to church. So where are you staying? So I know to visit you when I need you. Now, aren't you thankful that the hospitals are not mobile in the sense that you have to figure out where they are every time you get sick? I mean, you kind of know, well, that's where it's going to, I mean, I can tell you, if it's going to get rough, that's where I'm going to wind up. But on that third day, there is still, please hear me, Jesus doesn't look at them and go, what's wrong with you? That's all you're going to ask me? Did you notice that? Jesus is like, what are you really looking for? See, that's the question that leads us to the, where are you staying? Because if it really is, what you're really looking for is something, but not someone. If what you're looking for is really can it be answered by what are you looking for, then Jesus will to be visited because he's means to the end, not the end. So what are you looking for, peace? Then the worst thing God could do is give it to you. Because if he gave it to you, you'd leave. What are you looking for, joy? And then he gave you joy. And then... You'd leave until you felt like you were running out. You felt dry, till you felt weak. But what God wants is a relationship with you, and so he tells you, come. Why don't you come and see for yourself? On that third day, it's still better than Monday and Tuesday, but it's still not best. On the third day, we go and we check it out, and we identify now, and we put an investment, but it's a limited investment. Is that where you're at? To be honest, I would venture to say on a good day, this is the best of most Christianity for many of us. 
where we're consistent at something, where, well, Lord, I'm going to commit because I know that fellowship is what you call me to and you want me to come and see and you want to be able to, to get me in a place where I could be around others. Well, notice what happens here because it's where the ministry starts. Andrew, who, by the way, will be Captain Invitation in Scripture. Andrew, what the first thing he does is he goes and he gets his brother. And I do like this. I mean, church, if it's healthy, if it's a place where we are getting fed, if it's a place where we do encounter the Lord, it'll actually, to be honest, inspire us to invite someone else. In this case, it's his brother. And the more we know Peter, of course, we know, knowing the scriptures, that this guy is going to be one of the most colorful guys in the New Testament. He'll be fun to be around because every time he blows it, we feel good about our own walk. We're like, well, clearly God has a lot of patience for people. Look at this, yuts. You know, and then I think, well, I guess he can love me too. But the reason I say that is, is that Jesus doesn't just say, oh, well, cool, come on in and join us. He looks, and the first thing he does is he gives them a promise. I don't warn you, you, t- you go start inviting people, what happens is they're going to start hearing about God's promises for them. Here's the issue. For Simon Peter, I want to remind you, well, this is a little, this is more than Monday, and this is more than Tuesday for him. I mean, he could have inquired. I, I mean, up to this point, Andrew, by the way, was John the Baptist's disciple. So somewhere in all of that, John the Baptist has been teaching Andrew. I imagine somewhere in all of that, Andrew's been speaking with Peter. And I imagine, and again, forgive me for all of this sort of, but in that, somewhere down the line, Peter's been hearing this information, but we don't read anywhere that Peter was a, was a disciple of John the Baptist. I mean, we'd, so somewhere he may have heard it and gone, all right, whatever, whatever, that's cool. And maybe in the beginning of it, there it was where we got all of that. And then somewhere there was an investment with no incentive, with no initiative, where somewhere in all of that, he's like, wow, it's getting better. You should see all the people that are coming. You should see who's actually confessing their sins today. You wouldn't believe. Remember that guy down the street, that crazy guy? Remember that guy that we thought we had it all together? He came confessing. You should have heard what he confessed. I mean, the things he could have said is Andrew. But on this day, it's the Messiah. And on this day, he runs and he's like, Peter, we don't have time for Monday and Tuesday. You got to get right to Wednesday with me and you need to come with me. I'm going to give you this, but I want you to take a personal initiative with me and I want you to take steps with me now and follow me. So they go and Peter comes, Simon. And Jesus looks and he's like, I know more about you than you do, man. But I want you to know the one thing that you don't know anything about that I know is your future. And I'm going to call you the rock. Now today that means a little bit more than it would have 15 years ago because now there's an actor named that. Well, he was a wrestler and I don't know if you've heard, he's even talked about running for president because, you know, apparently there's room for people that are all excited about themselves. Anyways, with all of that, so here he is in all of this. And I, I get this idea in all of this that he looks and, and Simon kind of comes and imagine somewhere in all of that he's heard his brother talk and he's heard his brother talk and he's heard his brother talk about the fact that John keeps saying, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming. Make a way for the Lord. The Lord's on his way. He's within reach. He's, he's, he's hands distance away. And then he's like, oh, bro, remember how I've been talking about the Lord's coming? Well, he's come. And now you really need to come. All those times you're like, yeah, I'll come, I'll come. Now you really need to come. I can tell you, I see the Lord. And can you imagine what that would be like? It's like, you know how many times I've been inviting you to church and you've been like, no, 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 no. I get it. You're getting the information. Well, let me tell you about my personal encounter with the Lord. Remember, that's our Tuesday. Because in my personal encounter with the Lord, that's what you're robbing yourself of. Not just information. Because if it's information, why not just sit at home and get it on in the internet? But if it's an encounter, well, then it's like, you need to come with me. Come with me. Come on, just come with me. And finally, it's like, no, no, no. I can tell you the Lord is here. Because the Lord is here, you need to come. And then all of a sudden, Peter comes, Simon comes, and Jesus is like, hey, there you are. I'm going to call you the rock. And we don't read anywhere that he goes, what? What are you talking about? I think how many times in Scripture... Jesus' answer is always going to be the same thing. Come and see. Interesting, by the way, it'll take us all the way to the book of Revelation where John, the writer of this gospel, will be brought into heaven because Jesus says, come and see. And I mean, that becomes the whole kind of beauty of it. Well, the angels, if you will, the four living creatures, come and see. The second seal, the second living creature, come and see. The third living creature, come and see. And I just love it. All of the living creatures, all four of them are all going to tell John, come and see, come and see for yourself. And I get why in John 11, Jesus weeps. Only one, two, one of two times in scripture where Jesus weeps. 
Because it's the one place, if you remember at Lazarus' tomb, when he asks, where have you laid him? You remember what their answer is? Come and see. See, what Jesus could invite you to come and see was life, the adventure, living, glory, beauty, vibrance, thriving. All of that's what God invites you when he says, come and see for yourself. But you know the one thing we had to invite him to see? Death. That's the thing. It's like, you want to see what life's like without you? You want to see what it looks like, the result of sin in the world? You want to see what a fallen world looks like, God? Come and see for yourself. You can see why it tore him up. So on our Monday, there was an inquiry, if you will, but there was no investment. On our Tuesday, we gathered information, but there was no initiative. On our Wednesday, as we see it here, there was identification and there was a limited investment. But then we get to Thursday. Verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, going to Galilee is different than going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where everyone goes for the feasts. Going to Galilee now is a move. Interesting. And yet, Philip was from Bethsaida originally, which, by the way, is in Galilee. As Simon, and Pe- Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, those guys were all fishing partners up in the Sea of Galilee in that area. But now we find Philip. Jesus finds the guy and he's like, he looks at him. Now we don't have any experience of what Jesus had with Philip before this point. Assumedly, this other guy, we don't even know who the other guy was yesterday. But remember, it was Andrew who followed Jesus, but there were two disciples. Many believe, and it's easy to believe that the other was actually the writer of this gospel. I don't know. Could be. But we do know is on this day, now on Thursday, he looks at Philip, who we've not met to this point, and he goes, follow me. We do know he's going to be one of the 12. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and of the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now this wasn't because Nazareth was known as a rotten place, as it was known for a place of questionable repute. It was actually not really known at all. It was somewhere between 60 to 120 people. So imagine, if you will, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is going to come from a place where there are, if you think about it, there are more people on a single train car. We're not even talking about the entirety of a train. We're talking about one carriage. There are more people on a single carriage or on a bus than there are in this town. He's like, really? That God wants to save the world and he's going to insert him there of all places? Well, interesting as it was, Nazareth becomes then the, 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 the birthplace of this ministry, even though Jesus will be rejected there. Philip's response, which leads me to believe he may have been the other guy, according to the last day, he looks and he does exactly what Jesus said the day before. Come and see. There's so many other answers we can give people, but that's the one we seldom give. When someone says, you know, I've got problems, what do you have to say about this? And you're like, well, I don't know, but why don't you just come and see for yourself? Well, I've never been to church. Awesome. Well, then we have nothing to clean up. Why don't you just come for come and see for yourself? Well, what is Christianity like? Why don't you come and see for yourself? Come and hang out with other people who love him. And you're welcome to come. We live in glass houses as Christians in that sense. People are welcome to see that we are humans with weaknesses and failures and strengths and glories that God has given us. But the celebration is we live in his forgiveness and we walk in his glory and we seek to be surrendered and watch him change us. So Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him. Now, I want to make clear here, and we're almost done as you see, that Nathaniel's an honest skeptic. There's a big difference between a skeptic and a cynic. A cynic is somebody who really doesn't care about the evidence. All they really want is to think that they're right. Now, you find these kind of people when something comes up that appears to be evidence somewhere in Jerusalem or somewhere in Israel. Several years ago, they, found, they thought they found what was called the bone box, the ossuary of James. James, Jesus' brother, his half-brother. Same mom, different dad. And when the box came up, it said Yaakov. Yaakov is the Hebrew name for James. James is just the Greek of it. The brother of Yehoshua, Joshua. And they said, well, that nobody ever identifies by their brother unless their brother's famous. So he must have been a famous Joshua. 
And therefore, it must have been James, the brother of Jesus. And I, I don't really care if it is or not. It's neither here nor there. I know Jesus exists. I know all of it. But in all of that, it's interesting to watch people's responses. Certain people, they're like, hmm, I should look into that. Okay? Now, more than likely, it's going to be one of those Monday things, you know, where they're going to look into the information but really never invest. But on the other side of it, there are those that are like, well, it's clearly fake. I'm like, how is it fake? How do you know it's fake? Which it just must be. That's the voice of a cynic. In other words, it's already damned before he has a chance to look at it. Well, on the other side of it, and by the way, God has no respect for a cynic, but for a skeptic, he has no problem. Nathaniel was a skeptic. Now, I remind you, someone comes up to you, Philip, and he's like, we found the Messiah. You won't believe this. We found the Messiah. And you're like, wow, Jerusalem, right? No, not Jerusalem. Oh, where, where is he? Where did he come from? Nazareth, little snoring. Somewhere outside of Colchester, something that we can't even pronounce. And you're like, what? Come on, really? Yeah. Are you serious? Could anything, could anything come out of there? <coughs> well, we're not going to, why, why argue? Why don't you just come and see for yourself? And if you are convinced that somebody is going to encounter God, then why even argue and try to get into it and stop them instead of just going, you know what? The only real answer is going to be for you to encounter him yourself and decide. So he comes. And as he comes, Jesus looks and he goes, now there's an Israelite with no guile. There's a guy who actually tells the truth. Interesting statement to make. Stops in his tracks. So imagine, imagine someone like Daniel Chung, and he's kind of walking out and, you know, <clears throat> he's going because he's been invited by somebody else. And imagine at that point, the Lord just goes, that guy's a truth teller. And you can see him going, uh, what did Philip tell you about me? Now, Jesus could have said a lot of things. Think about it. A lot of things Jesus could have said. You know, I, oh, I, I could tell you about when you were younger. I could tell you about this situation. But um, a lot of the things Jesus could have said, Nathaniel could have thought Philip told him. Does that make sense? But there was something Nathaniel couldn't have told him or that Philip couldn't have told him. And that was what he had just done because they were coming together. So as they come together, he's like, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And of course, the next thing you know, Nathaniel answers in verse 49, Ravi, master, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, for what it's worth, Jesus just called him an Israelite. And he has just declared him as king. Now, what in the world was he doing under the fig tree? Who knows? Jesus does. But if God really wanted us to know what he was doing under the fig tree, he would have told us. But this whole situation is unique to the Gospel of John. It's the only place we get in in scriptures right here. And might I say, the whole point of it was that Jesus knew how to handle a skeptic. An honest skeptic is genuinely looking for truth to believe in. And Jesus knows what truth to give you at that moment. For Nathaniel, it was fig tree. But I guarantee you this, if there is a way for you to trust in him, he's going to do it. Now, when someone says, I told God, if you healed my grandmother, I'd believe in you, and my grandmother died. So clearly God must not be real. I'd say, actually, I think that your promise was fake. Because if you really would have believed in him, if God healed your grandmother, he would have healed your grandmother. Unless that was one of those line-drawing relationships. You ever met someone like that? They're like, if you really love me, you'll do this. You know what happens when you step past that line? They create a new one. Well, if you really love me now, you'll do this, because that was yesterday. And you know, you live your whole life where it's like you constantly have to prove yourself. Well, God knows he doesn't want to get in that kind of relationship with you. However, in a situation like this for Nathaniel, he was genuinely looking, and he met him. Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And he's like, oh. It's all I need. It's all I need. For Thomas, it's touch and feel, Thomas. After his resurrection, that was what Thomas needed. He called him his Lord and his God. He says, wow, that was it. It's all it took for you, huh? You think that was amazing. You ain't seen nothing yet. He says, you know what you're going to see? Hereafter, you will see heaven open and the angels, <clears throat> excuse me, the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It was, you know, you're going to see heaven and earth meet and you're going to see them meet at me. I'm the one thing that connects everything. And Nathaniel, welcome. 
Now, the difference between Thursday and the other three days is radical. On our first day, we may have gathered information, but we had no personal investment. On the second day, we gathered more information, and we even agreed with it, but we maybe even had this desire to know more, but we really didn't do anything with it. On the third day, we did do something with it, but we didn't do it. We did something, but it was like, but at any moment, we could pull the plug. We always kind of had our hand on the wheel. We always kind of was, it's kind of like we gave God the driving car, you know, the driver's instruction car, where we still had our own brake and we had our own steering wheel, and he's welcome to drive but if it goes anywhere too fast or too far we know how to step on the brake and we know how to we we assume the wheel again and we know how that is that was our that was our wednesday but on thursday he says follow me this is not about come check me out this is follow me now and there's a difference you want to go with the adventure of a lifetime you got to follow him and let me ask you are you following him or are you just meeting him those are different things And somewhere in all of this, this is where we have to make our conclusion today. Because it's easy enough to take God at arm's distance and say, when I need you, I know where to find you. It's as if we have the sort of bat thing we can fly into the sky when things are rough in our Gotham. And yet somewhere in all of that, most of the time, really, we just kind of know he's at arm's length away, even though he dwells within us as Christians. But Jesus says, you really want life? You're going to have to follow me. You're not going to get it by just coming to visit. Because what you really want is something you don't want to run out. And God will let you get dry. And he'll let you get weak. And he'll let you get confused. And he'll let you feel helpless. Because if that's what it takes for you to finally follow him, he'll do it. The question is, what would following him look like? Well, I'll tell you what will happen. The moment that happens, God gives you a whole new you. Did you notice that? He's like, I saw you. I know you. And I've known you before you ever followed me. I knew you before any of that. But I tell you what it takes to follow him. We tell him, you're my king. You're more than my friend and you're more than my savior. You have now become my Lord. And to become my Lord, that means what you say goes. Hey, that doesn't mean I won't be afraid and that doesn't mean I won't be reluctant and that doesn't mean I won't not want to do it sometimes. But when the Lord calls me to follow him, he's going to lead me to the leper and I'm going to go, leper. Or he's going to lead me to, you know, to the crazy people, the demoniac. And I'm going to go, oh, no respectable person goes to that neighborhood where that crazy guy is. And then, but the good news is everywhere Jesus leaves, the person's not what they were when we met him. So they're no longer the leper and they're no longer the legion. Now, all of a sudden, they're the healthy individual telling everybody else about how Christ has made them different. And you got to walk around with that. And then I'm like, wait a minute. But then you're going to lead me to the confrontation with people who are interfering with people coming to know the Lord. Am I ready for that? And am I ready actually to take the stand for people who are going to point and laugh because I'm now actually overboard and they warned me this is what was going to happen if I really chose to follow Jesus like I should. Because I'm going to have to pick up my cross and that is a place of mockery to the world. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. And then I'm going to have to follow him to his own cross and see what love really looks like. And love is not a warm fuzzy. There was no warm fuzzy on the cross. There was no, oh, but I really have this hunger to just care for you. This was a commitment for which the emotions that we say are love would follow. It was a commitment when everyone else was laughing and saying, come off the cross and pointing. And yet he was still dying for him anyways. But I don't just follow him to the cross. And that would be my Friday. I follow him to to his empty tomb where I realize that death no longer owns him or any of us. And then I follow him all the way to the hill in Galilee where he shows me what the kingdom looks like again. And then I follow him to the Mount of Olives and I watch him ascend so he can go and prepare a place for me so I can follow him out there and spend eternity with him. You see, from this point on, my whole life's following him. England's an easy stop. But the bottom line is everywhere we go is temporary because sooner or later we're going to live forever with them in heaven. There's the exciting part of it. The question is, are you visiting or are you following? My challenge to you is it's time to walk and take graduate days, would you? Graduate from, yeah, I'm gathering the information and well, you know, for most of Christianity, that's cool. To you know, actually, this is what I need to do. I need to follow him. And look, if you don't even know what that means yet in your own life, which is okay, Just tell him you're willing 
And then actually let him do the rest. Just say, you're my Lord now. If you don't say anything, I'm not going to go anywhere. But the moment you say, I'll follow, wherever that is. The cool thing is, is following Jesus doesn't mean you're always walking. Most of the time, it means you're sitting with him at his feet. But it's all of a sudden being at the word means something. And being in prayer means something. Because it's more than just me telling him what I need. Now it's like, hey, I want to make sure that we're tight. Because if you move in any way, I want to follow. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. And I want to thank you, Lord, for as we've walked through these days, we see how each one of them has impact and we recognize that each one has minor merit, but each day gathers greatly. And yet, Lord, I recognize to just simply get information but do nothing with it in our own hearts is folly. And to gather it and put it in our hearts but not let it make its way to our feet, that's still folly. But Lord, we know more than that. We know, Jesus, that when you died on the cross for our sins, that we confessed you as Savior. We declared that. We confessed you as Savior. And in doing so, Lord, we recognize that that price was paid. And yet, Lord, we don't want to be a Wednesday Christian. We don't want to be somebody that just visits you now. We want to become disciples to follow you on the greatest adventure that could ever be on this human life. And that is to watch you transform the leper and legion alike, to raise the paralytic and, the, and, and heal <clears throat> the powerless, Lord, alike, to stand against all of the things that interfere as impediments to coming to you, and to stand against hell and death itself and overcome them. Even darkness itself could not overcome you. And I pray today that we would understand in our heart of hearts that you're calling us to do more than just understand you, but to follow you. And so I pray today that we do more than declare you as Savior, but in our hearts we declare you as Lord. The conquering Lord who conquered the grave, who conquered the guilt and sin and shame at the cross and and then conquered the grave and the death, Lord, of all of that by raising again from the dead. And so we worship a living, risen Savior and Lord. And I just want to tell you, Lord, I want to follow you wherever you want to lead me, Lord, however you want to do so. I don't have to have all the answers. I just have to know you're the answer. And if I'm following you, it's your job to lead. It's your job to guide. It's your job to provide. It's your job to make clear how and when and where. My eyes are on you. So here I am. Here's my heart. Here's my life. I just say, have me now, please. Let me be your disciple who follows you as you desire and that we would hear you today say, follow me. So Lord, you become more than a Sunday visit, but you become a lifetime pursuit. And here's our lives now. Choosing to follow you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You've heard our prayers today, Lord. You know what's in our hearts graduate us to that place of following you like you desire. Jesus, in your name. Amen.